Crown Council Mentor of the Month. It's Steve Anderson, and I'm delighted to introduce our, our mentor this month, Dr. Michael Sonic, uh, who is a well-known periodontist uh, from Connecticut, uh, who has a list of credentials that would take the entire program to go through. And we're delighted that he's here. Um, I'll just give you a, a little bit of background um, on Dr. Sonic. He practices in Connecticut, has been built a, a great practice there, received his education from literally all over the world, including Harvard uh, and also in Sweden at the Brandenburg Clinic in, in Sweden. Uh, he has lectured all over the country, uh, as well as written textbooks that have been published and are used all over the world. Uh, and the credentials go on and on. And so this, this uh, conversation today is about one of the, the core values of and beliefs in the Crown Council, which is a copy genius. And this is a dentist and a man uh, that is worth copying in so many regards, including one of his core beliefs that he does not believe in treating patients. And we're going to talk about that first off, because Dr. Sonic just released a book entitled Treating People, Not Patients. And uh, we believe in the Crown Council about creating a culture of success. And so much of what Dr. Sonic has done and believes feeds into that whole premise. So Dr. Sonic, thank you for being with us and being our Crown Council Mentor of the Month. Now, it's an honor to be here, Steve. And uh, I have tremendous respect what you do what you've been doing and how many people uh, you have helped. Okay. And we just got to know each other recently through a mutual friend, uh, Jay Workin. And I feel like when I talk to you, I've known you my entire life. And it's sort of like, you know, opposites don't attract, likes attract. So, I mean, I really have tremendous respect for what you're doing and how many people you're helping. So right. I'm really happy to be here and be able to share some of this uh, information. With All you right. Your... So let's cut to the chase. You don't yeah. believe treating patients. Why? Yeah, well, it's it's a concept that, that that I have had most of my most of my life, and I do treat patients. It's it's my book is called <laughs> Treating People, Not Patients. Right. But you know, I remember once I was at a lecture, and I think it was on digital planning or something, and it was a guy from uh, he was from Europe, and he was he was I think from Spain. He's looking down. He goes, you know, sometimes I look down, and I realize that there's a body attached to these teeth. There's a human being down there. Right. Oftentimes, you know, we refer to you know our patients as procedures. And when I, you know, I've had a lot of dental care myself. I've had a lot of medical things going on, as most people have, especially when you've been around for a while. And I do like to be treated like a human being. And I think that we're not taught. And it's, it really comes back to our education. Why do people go to dental school? We go to dental school to learn how to do procedures, you know, that to learn how we do stuff. And if he looks into Simon Sinek, he talks about the why, you know, what's your why? That's very popular right now. You know, what do you do? Well, I'm a dentist. What do you do? I fix teeth. I drill holes. I take out teeth. I fill bone up. I do veneers. I do orthodontics. But we don't really talk about what do we actually do? What's, is that why we do it? Some dentists do it because they just love to do stuff. You know, And there's a, there's a lot of those dentists out there. I call them procedurists. There's nothing wrong with being a good procedurist. Like if I'm going to have heart surgery, I want that heart surgery to be a great procedurist. He doesn't have to have a great personality when he's yeah. doing the heart surgery. But it would be nice if he said hello to me before the procedure, or at least had a team to do that to make me feel good. Because as you know, we talked about it a little bit, your mental state makes such an impact on who you are being, how you heal, et cetera. Your stress levels is really impacts, really impacts how you 
heal. And people want to be treated as human beings. They don't want to be treated as procedures. And I think a lot of people, you know, I know you don't do this, but a lot of people who are involved in training dentists that have become more successful, they go, well, send them a rose on their birthday or, you know, make them fearful that if they don't get the treatment done, things are going to fail for them. You know, I know one dentist that makes patients go home cry because they said they're going to have heart disease if they don't have their periodontics treated. And I think that's a really terrible way to be. So I really am all about people. Um, I really love people. I've been involved with people my whole life. I was involved in, in high school. I did a lot with people, a lot of group, a lot of service work. I worked in restaurants. You know, um, I did, you know, I, I was a bartender. I cooked food. I served food. I played cocktail piano. I was a lifeguard. So I always wanted to work with people and uh, make them better. And so when I got involved in dentistry, I said, so, you know, I, I, I like the procedures. I enjoy doing them. But what I really want to do is make people feel better. And that's sort of my goal in life. I want everybody around me to feel better. So when I'm telling patients something bad, and a lot of my patients, because I'm periodontist, I sort of see people at the end stage. You know, a lot of my people refer to me really, things haven't gone well. My average new patient is 64, 65 years old. They've had nothing but problems. They've had multiple procedures done in their life, and they're losing their teeth, and they've been told they can't have implants or they can't save their teeth, et cetera. I don't care how bad their situation is when they walk in. I don't care how poor their prognosis is, I'm going to say, you know, it's not that bad, you know, because it really isn't. It's it's really your, your your point of view, right? I mean, it's like, you know, if, I, if I'm having a great day, I'm usually in a great mood, okay? So if I go into Starbucks and the barista is really nice to me, it's me, okay? I can go to the same Starbucks five minutes later in a bad mood. They're not very nice. It's, ama it's amazing how that's a reflection. And I think by looking at, you know, our patients as human beings, uh, it's a great, it's a better life. And patients sort of flock to you. And they send other people that want to flock to you. And it's not just about doing those procedures. Now, I do need to be good at the procedures. Okay, don't, don't get me wrong. I've gotten pretty good at doing, you know, the procedures. I'm well-known as, I'm a well-known surgeon. But really what I'm most passionate about is being a well-known person that gives patients a great experience when they're in my office. Exactly. So if I'm talking too much, just let me know. I mean, because I'm like a wind-up toy. I can just keep, keep going. <laughs> You're good. So tell us in, in how you built your practice. I mean, being a periodontist, it's, you know, it's a big referral business. You're getting referrals from general dentists everywhere. Yep. And it would be easy to be a procedurist to just right. take care of the procedure. Share with us some of the specific things that you've done in your practice to put people at the center of the practice before they're a patient. Well, I just made a commitment. You know, one of my coaches, Dan Sullivan, talks about, if you want to, he talks about the four C's and the, the, their, their commitment, their courage, their capability, and their confidence. And I have these conversations all the time with people I coach. I do a lot of coaching, um, not just dentists, but, you know, staff members, family members, people, people in my life like you do. And I was talking to a young staff member yesterday. She's been with me for four weeks. And I have a very uh, seasoned staff. I have people that have been here for 20 years, 25 years. Some there, you know, a few years, but, you know, she feels that she should know as much as people should know after she's been there 20 years and she was ready to quit. And I said, I heard you're ready to quit. Now I am, I do all the hiring in my office. So, um, and I hire great people. So I don't hire people that are competent in doing dentistry or, or have dental skills. I hire great people. And then we teach them the, the core skills. So she was upset that she didn't know the skill, the skill level. And I said, well, are you committed to it? She goes, yeah. I said, well, you're at the courage phase right now. And the courage phase is doing the work that you don't want to do to get to the place that you want to be. You know, it's like, oh, this, it's like a coach. Uh, I think Lombardi said that. 
you know, no, the guy from Texas. Um, who's the big coach from Dallas? We'll you take know. we'll take all the credit in Texas. Okay, because everything <laughs> good comes out of Texas. We know That's that. That's right. Except for Texans. Texans don't come out of Texas; they stay in Texas. Right. <laughs> Texas forever. Yeah. So it, it was uh, Tom Landry. Tom Landry says a coach is the person that makes you do what you don't want to do to become the person you want to be. So I had this conversation with her. So I said, you're going through the courage part right now, and then you become capable. I said, I'm only confident because I know how to do it. I said, but I have an advantage. I've been trained and I've been doing it for 40 years. I go, you're at four weeks. There's a certain amount of arrogance that you have. They think that you're going to be as good as someone 40 years after four weeks. So where does that take me to what your question? How do you start? Well, I, I think it's starting with beginning with the end in mind, as Stephen Covey talks about, where am I going to be at the end of my career? Where do I want to? And I started in a mall. So when I was, I put myself through school working, you know, part-time and when I was a residency and I went to a mall and this was back in 1984. When there and were malls. It, yeah, there were malls then, but there are mall <laughs> dentists. What's a mall, like, Michael? Wait, what's a mall? <laughs> <laughs> That's when there were stores, okay? Before That's everything right. was digital. So I was in this mall and I'm thinking like, well, my, you know, my mom says, well, you can make money working in the mall. You could do it. I said, do I want to do that? And so I practiced in this mall with Jeff Shapiro, who was one of the, probably one of the top dentists in Manhattan now. He's got a huge practice in down in, 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 in the Wi-Fi. And he, he and I, we just, just, it was just happenstance. We were there together. We worked together for two years. We did ideal dentistry in a mall. We were making, you know, very little money. And but we decided we we're going to practice our skill set and get good. And we, we we didn't know that we were going to become successful practitioners 20 years later. And but we, that's how we, we practiced it. And then I decided I don't want to be a mall dentist. I want to have a private practice. And I just opened up and I had a vision that I was going to open up and create a successful practice. I had a vision that I was going to meet well-known people in the field. I was going to search those people out. And I decided to surround myself with good mentors and I would, and these are people that don't even know that they're my mentors. I would just look at them and I would just, I would just copy what they did. And then I'd call them and I find that the best people in the world always really do want to open up and give you advice. I have, I have, I have a database that's amazing. I said, I have almost every dentist, well-known dentist cell phone because I, I searched them out and people go, how do you know so many people? I go, I want to know them because they, I learn a lot. And then they call me and it's a really great, this, this give and take. So how do you start? I think you're going to start by deciding, make a decision. What do you want to be? And then I do believe that we can all get there. To become a dentist isn't easy. Okay. We had to work really hard. We had to develop a skill set that has nothing to do with becoming a successful dentist. I said, so like, I am not particularly gifted with my hands. I wasn't, I wasn't an artist. Okay. I'm good, but I wasn't like that guy. I wasn't that best guy in dental school that can do the beautiful wax up which we don't even do anymore, but I wasn't that, that guy. Right. Um, I'm pretty bright, you know, but I wasn't the smartest guy, you know, uh, and I was a sort of a, a sort of a flake, you know, I just was sort of arrogant when I was in dental school. I just wanted to have a good time until one guy took my wax up. His name was Joe Grasso. He picked it up and he said, Mike, what is this? I said, it's my wax up. Now everybody spent four or five hours on a wax up. I did in 20 minutes because I wanted to go to clinic. Uh -huh. And he called me in his office on a Friday afternoon and he told every student, it's a small school. I went to the University of Connecticut with Harold Lowe as our dean, which we'll talk about in a second. So I went to this, I went up to his office and he had already told everybody that he was calling me in his office. So I knew I was in trouble. And I had hair down on my shoulders and I wasn't that clean back then. I wasn't neat and all that how I am today. And he holds my wax up and he goes, what is this? I says, my wax up. And he was a big intimidating guy. And he lights up a cigar 
in his office. This is 1977. Puts his feet on the desk, takes my wax up. He goes, this is a piece of shit. And he throws it across the room and it breaks into like 50 pieces. He says, if you ever throw hand in something like this again, I'll boot your butt out of dental school so fast you wouldn't know what hit you. So I decided, well, I better get my act together. And I went out and I bought new clothes. I cut my hair. It was yes, sir, no, sir. And he made a huge impact upon my life. Wow. And I, he ended up giving me a great recommendation when I went to my residency program. He would literally change my life in that moment. So I decided if I wanted to be good, I better commit and do it the right way. And I think it's the decision that comes early on. So what if you want to do that and you don't know how to get there? You know, you look for other people, you look for role models, and you ask a lot of questions. Dentists tend to be isolationists as a, as a rule. Okay, They work in a small hole in, in a 10-foot in a by 12-foot room with a very small team. I mean, we're like little rabbits running around the warren. And we don't have a big team around us. And so that's why I think continuing education, you know, partnerships with other people are important, developing study groups, constantly being educated, you know, always having teachers. And, you know, like I'm not a I'm, I'm a teacher, but I, I look at myself as a constant student. I'm more of a student than a teacher. I just share what I've learned from other people. So every time I talk to people, I'm learning something. Every time I give a course, I learn something. You know, there's some feedback there. All right. So you mentioned him. Talk to us a little bit about Harold Lowe, because this is a, I think it's a concept that is very straightforward and that every dentist needs to be reminded of constantly. You, and you got this perspective early on. He injected this into you early, yeah. early on. Yeah. Well, Harold Lowe, I'm going to ask a question of your listeners right now. Does anyone know who Harold Lowe is? <laughs> and I ask that question every time I give a course. Um, I don't think I've ever had a non-periodontist tell me who Harold Lowe was. I know who he is because I've read your book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or unless you've read my book or he's passed away. But this was 19, I uh, graduated dental school in 79. So I began in the, in the fall of 1975. So it's fall of 1975. I went to the University of Connecticut School of Dental Medicine, which I only went to, uh, besides being because I got in, was because the tuition was only $900 a year because I was a Connecticut resident. You know, I got into some other schools, but I'm lo I looked at the tuition and I thought they were more prestigious. It was probably the best decision of my life because it was life-changing. I did not know who Harold Lowe was or any of the other people that were there. There was a guy called Ken Corman who became editor of the Journal of Periodontology. There was Mark Patters. There were uh, Paul Robertson. There were, there were all these brilliant people that were there because of Harold Lowe. And Harold Lowe was the father of periodontology. And this was 1975, I met him. And so our first day of school, he brings us down to the, the, the um, lecture hall. There are only 40 people in our class. And he says, I want to tell you that you are now physicians of the oral cavity. Mm. He says, you are now doctors. Okay. Now, most dental schools, they don't treat you like this. Now, at the, there were other schools like Georgetown, which I'd also gotten into. I've heard that, that the, some of the professors will take alginate and dump it on your head. And, you know, they were, they were, it, was, it was a very tough, you know, my daughter went to the University of Texas at San Antonio, and it was it, it was more like the 60s because it's a very military school. But this UConn wasn't. It was pass-fail. And you think if it's pass-fail, you're not going to work hard. But our school scored consistently number one in our national boards with a pass-fail system because we worked so hard. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting because I mean, my, my life right now is pass-fail. Yours is pass-fail, right? I mean, how are we keeping score? No I mean, this conversation, I mean, I don't have to talk to you. You don't have to talk That's to me. We'll give that, we'll give that <laughs> gun graft a C. Either it works <laughs> or it doesn't, right? Yeah. So, and your relationship. Okay. You know, we're, but anyway, um, so he created a school that was pass-fail. And he says, 
your physicians of the oral cavity, and you need to treat the whole patient. Now, Harold Lowe, mm. I didn't know at the time, but he did the article that was published in 1965 called Experimental Gingivitis in Man. And he took 21 students from Norway. Harold Lowe was Norwegian, and he was a dentist at the University of Oslo. And he took 21 healthy students. He took the toothbrush away. Within seven days, 21 out of 21 had gingivitis. He cultured them before and at seven days, and then he gave them the toothbrush back. And then within seven days, the gingivitis went away. So what he was the first person to show, and what's bizarre is this is 1965. It took us that long. yesterday. Yeah, that if you don't brush, you're going to get the gingivitis. He also proved that 100% of the population will get gingival bleeding if they don't brush. Not periodontal disease, but bleeding. Right. And he also proved that it's it caused by bacteria because it went from gram-positive cocci to gram-negative anaerobic bacteria, and then it went back to gram-positive cocci. So oral hygiene is really important. You know, it's basically the cornerstone of dentistry. And so what Harold Lowe said was, here's how we're going to train you. In most schools, they give you requirements. You have to do like 100 crowns or 10 dentures and X. He says, we're going to give you requirements, but they're going to be minimal. You don't have to do 100 crowns. I forgot what they were, maybe 30. So we didn't get a lot of clinical experience because we didn't have to do that many procedures. Mm -hmm. However, he says, if you treat a patient, you have to treat everything that that patient has. Mm. And he says, and you can't treat the patient until they're periodontally healthy. So he was the dean of the school. And so every patient had to go through periodontal therapy before they had any restorative dentistry. So that meant that the plaque score had to be, you know, 10%. So it means only 10% of the surface had plaque. So if you had to have zero plaque, and that goes back to the philosophy of Bob Barkley, who you may know of, you oh, know, absolutely. co-diagnosis, co-treatment planning. Yeah. And he used to train, he did the same thing in his practice back in the 70s. He used to charge patients $10 a visit for oral hygiene instructions. And he wouldn't treat them until their health care was, you know, ideal. So we had to do the same thing. It was clinic four. And I hated the clinic. It was the perio clinic. It was the only clinic that was all Swedish. The woman wore clogs. We had to wear gloves back then. That was before we were wearing gloves. So the only clinic that we wore gloves was perio because AIDS didn't come out around until 1982. Um, that's another story. I was working, take, working on AIDS patients without gloves in Harlem, not knowing it. Mm-hmm. So, but back then we had to wear gloves there and we had to get those patients healthy. We used to call it the Perio Hotel. Once you check in, you can't check out, like the Bates Hotel in Psycho. So, <laughs> but our patients were healthy. Hotel we, California, Michael. You can check yeah. in anytime you want, you can't leave. <laughs> So anyway, we, we worked in that clinic and we did what those patients needed. So when I got out of that school, I realized I couldn't trade patients. You know, the patient came into treatment in my office. I would do whatever they needed. So I ended up treating the whole patient. Hmm. Now, my daughter, who went to the University of Texas in San Antonio, which is one of the top you know, 10 schools in the country, they had a lot of procedures. So she's very good at doing the procedures, but they were able to trade patients. So like um, if I you know, did all my restorative work but the patient needed a few crowns and i was done i could say do you have somebody that needs endo we we, we trade that is okay but it, it teaches you how to do procedures and you don't look at the whole person mm. and that and it, and, it, and it went beyond just the teeth you know it was it was like whatever that patient needed and so today in my own practice i have a list that's called top docs and those are the top doctors in every field perio endo oral surgery psychiatry, neurology, acupuncture, you know, kidney disease, et cetera. And it's throughout the country. So if somebody, and I get probably, and I'm not exaggerating, four or five calls a week, Mike, do you have somebody for this? And it could, and it's usually not in dentistry. And it could be like, I had to refer somebody to a dermatologist in San Antonio. 
because I know the top dermatologists at Yale. So I make sure those connections are there. And so I thought, I and I have great relationships with the physicians. Now, physicians are procedures. They, they don't treat the whole body. Right. If you've been to a physician lately, right. you're lucky if you get your blood pressure taken, you know, <laughs> when you go in there. They don't, they, they, and it is, they just do what they do. So if you come in with the smallest thing in my practice, I'm going to make sure you get a comprehensive examination. And even if it's not something I do, I make sure I get you in the right hand. Now, it's not always lucrative, but it's served me well to develop a great reputation in the community of someone who's going to take care of everything. Now, you said, how do I build the practice? I built it by being very patient-centric. I built the app. I mean, you know, my father was a carpenter and an engineer, so I built the office myself. I didn't swing the hammer, but I designed it. And I looked, I knew where every fixture, every light bulb was, everything was there. And I made it really boutique from the get-go. And people thought I was very rich, but I wasn't. I just went to the bank and got a loan, and I got some nice artwork. And put Angela Adams prints. They were 60 bucks. I still have them. They're about 40 years old. It looked really nice. And I made sure that we treated the patients really nice. And that's back to my hospitality care, but I was in restaurants and I was trained by some great people in restaurants. And if you look at my book, you know, the, the cover of the book has a, a, a blurb by Danny Meyer, who your reviewers may know is the owner of Shake Shack, but he also owns the, the top 30 restaurants in New York. He, three of the top 30 restaurants in Manhattan are his restaurants and there were 8,600 restaurants in Manhattan. So that's that's pretty pretty lofty air. And what he wrote in, a, in the book was Mike's deeper calling is to use his hospitality gifts to make people feel better. His lessons apply to any customer-facing business. So my book is about hospitality. It's, you know, it's written from the view of a dentist. But these principles are in any, any business where people talk to people. And I think that's what it's really all about. And that's basically my philosophy and, and, and who I feel I am in the world. I'm someone who wants to make everybody around me better, whether it's by doing the dentistry or just by listening to them or, and I know you're the same way, you know, I mean, I don't know you very well, but I mean, I do know you. I mean, I, I get you pretty quickly. And my friend who introduced me to you is one of my closest friends, Jage Workin. I mean, he's just a great guy. And he's at his birthday party, you know, 250 people show up, you know, that's the kind of guy, guy he is because people just love that guy. So. All right. Talk from a, a patient centric standpoint, you know, and you talk about a lot of things that make it work. Can you talk about when things don't work as planned? That's and a great question. And what you do strategically, yeah. because you plan for when things don't work, right? That's right. part of the whole strategy. So yeah. can you walk us through what that strategy is, what you do? How do you, yeah. what do you train your team to do? Walk us through that. Well, first of all, you don't run away. All right. That's the most important. You don't distance yourself. I don't distance myself. Um, you know, when things go right, I'm not building my practice. It's when things go wrong, right? And how do you handle the problems is really how you build it. And I've been, you know, in, in my own life, I've, I've had problems and, you know, it's like you get on the phone and say, I'm sorry, you know, uh, you can't help you. You put in your wrong number. You know, you, I don't want to be made wrong. So we never make a patient, patient wrong. Uh, there's a bunch of different different strategies depending upon what it is. Uh, there's one of them we call the three A's. When someone calls up complaining, you know, we we um, we acknowledge, uh, we apologize, and we act. Okay. And as we're doing that, we're assessing the situation, we're analyzing, we're figuring. But we want to always want to give them a solution. So we're very quick, you know. And as, so we said, yeah, I understand how you feel. I'm sorry that that happened. I go, here's what we can do. And we usually give them a, a solution that is going to be in their benefit, not not ours. So we want to. We want to make the patients right. Uh, Stu Leonard, uh, his, he gave me a blurb in the book. He's a pretty well-known, uh, I don't know if you know him down in Texas. Oh, but love Stu Leonard. 
You do. You got one. Really, but even even though he never came to Texas, <laughs> not yet. He, he is made... legendary. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Steve Leonard has a. Um, he he runs grocery stores. Uh, he does five hundred million a year, I think, in business. It's a big number, and um, he's got a sign when you go into his store. He's from my 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 area. Yeah. Uh, his neighborhood. And so when you, his father started the store, his father's passed away like three weeks ago in his nineties. And his father was a milkman and he started a, store, a little milk store. And now Stu Leonard Jr. has built it up. He's got like six or seven huge stores. So when you walk into his store, it says rule number one on a big rock. I don't know if you know this. It says the customer is always right. And then rule number two, they go reread rule number one. So I don't fight with my patients. I don't fight with referral sources. I don't fight with dentists. Call me up, you know. And it happens all the time. So everyone wants to point the finger. So I said, okay, this is what the problem is. Let me fix it. And yesterday I saw a patient that had two implants fail in another office. She came to see me a year ago when the second one was failing. And it's a friend of mine who's a, who's a surgeon in, in the area. And I said, he's a, and he's a good surgeon. Um, he's very talented. And I said, go back to see him. And uh, I didn't want to treat her because, you know, he doesn't that far from me. And I want to have a cordial relationship. And plus, I'd rather have him fix his own problem than me fix it. For a number of reasons, builds his relationship. Um, patients already paid for it, you know. And patient stays there, gets a good experience. So she came in yesterday. I hadn't seen her in a year. She came back, and he didn't fix it. He he took an implant out and goes, "If you want to come back here, I'm here for you." But he pretty much said, "I don't want to treat you." And he distanced her. And then she came in to see me. Now I've had implants fail before. I mean, we do. I've done a lot of implants. Our failure rates are around four or five percent, and so. If they fail, we have a strategy to replace them. I don't charge it. You know, I, I, I've already figured all this out. I don't charge people to fix the mistakes. It's included. So I give them a case fee. And when if there's a problem, I'll take care of it. I've had five or six implants fail twice in the same spot. Hmm. Um, I've gotten all five of those patients to have an implant. The third one did work. I didn't do the same thing. I did something differently. So I look at a failure as an opportunity. You know, that we, I mean, we've all heard that. What do they call a failure in Silicon Valley? Success. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> How many times did Elon Musk's uh, rockets crash? Okay. Right. If his last rocket crashed, he'd be out of business. I know so we know someone. You know, Steve Jobs. Okay. Remember him from Apple? Then they they they, they he lost his own company and then he had to start this his own company. He had to go start Pixar. You know, that, 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 that was his that was his rescue mission. And guess what? Pixar was pretty big. And guess what? He was running Apple again. So yeah. Apple is a good company, but it's not the company it was when Steve Jobs is there. You don't look at Apple for, for creativity. You look at Apple to make money. You know, that's what they do. They, they process data and they're involved in medicine. So, but Steve Jobs, you know, he embraced this failure. You know, and, and I, I, I always tell my, my students and my, especially my kids, you know, when I have failure, I go, here's an opportunity. How can you make this right? And we have a way of doing that. We say, what happens? Okay and what caused it and then number three is what was my part in it mm. okay and like because there is a part if there's a failure in my life i take a responsibility because if i don't take responsibility guess what i become a victim and then if i become a victim it's your fault it's their fault it's, it's because it rained even if it rains even if i'm an outdoor party and it rains it's my fault because i didn't have a tent or i didn't have a place for them to go and then number number four Okay, is after what's my fault? What can I do so it doesn't happen again? And what have I learned from it? So if I look at every failure as an opportunity, then I can get more experience in dealing with failures. So I always say to my students, because I've been practicing for close to 40 years, 
I graduated dental school in 79. So over that, I said, you know, if you have a problem, come to me. I go, there's nothing I haven't done. I go, I've had patients in the hospital. I've had implants in the sinus. I've had cellulitis. I had a almost a Ludwig's angina. I've never taken out the wrong tooth. That's the only th thing I haven't done. I go, I'm very proud of that. They'll take out a lot of teeth. And I always make sure I don't take out the wrong tooth. Yeah. So I always, we create a strategy and a series of checklists so that we, we don't have failures, but we still do have failures because there are three things that can go wrong. The doctor can screw up, the patient you know, can, can screw up, or you did the wrong procedure. Now, hopefully I won't do the wrong procedure and I won't screw up, but patients can screw up. But you know what? 90% of all failures are doctor-related doctor, doctor -related failures. Right. And they oftentimes don't, dist they, they'll distance themselves from the failure, so they'll make the same mistake again. So this doctor that had the two implants fail, who was the patient I saw yesterday, he did both implants with the same implants in the same location. He made no, he didn't, didn't change anything at all. And he blamed the patient. So, um, and I explained to her, I said, I'm, I'm not sure it's going to work if I, if I treat you. I said, but here's what we're going to do. And I went through it. And, you know, she had been in this doctor's office for two and a half years, and she had never once seen a cone beam CT scan. He's taken them. I mean, I spent 45 minutes with her yesterday. You know, she came in at the end of the day. I was with her till an hour past the end of my day, just talking to her, making her feel better. And she walked out of there, even though she has to pay for it again. She's going through another surgery. She says, thank you so much. She goes, I feel so, so good. So when a patient says to me, I feel good, and I'm giving them bad news, but I'm also giving them a solution. And this is something else. And if you're, 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 your listeners are out there, always link the solution with the problem. Don't let the patients wallow in that problem. So you'll jump in immediately and say, don't worry, we're going to take care of this. I'm going to take care of this. And I have a number of things that I say. You're in the right place. I'm glad that you're here. This is what we do. This is not This is not a big problem. We've seen this before. You should, if this is a big problem, and then I have them look in my mouth. Look in my mouth, because as you know, I have 23 crowns and lost 19. So I have more dental problems. So I think the most important thing is to create a model of success by having checklists for everything that you do. Follow those checklists and empower your team to do the same thing. So my team is completely empowered. I don't, they, they don't, they don't say, well, I can't help you. If there's a problem on the phone, they don't say, well, let me, let me talk to the doctor and get back to you. No, they'll, they'll handle it themselves. If they need a discount, give it. Okay. My time, their time is valuable. And that time where you leave the patient festering in a problem, that's when bad things can happen. That's when they can have bad ideas. That's when they make phone calls to their sister in California to put some bad Google review up. Okay. Take care of it. Thank you. You know, <laughs> I made a phone call today to TD Ameritrade, which was just bought by Schwab. I just wanted to find out if they were going to be in the office. I was on the phone and I played around with this 20 minutes in a phone tree. I finally got somebody and they were in St. Louis, not in my town. And they didn't have the phone number of where the person was. That's a big company. They, they could do better than that. So, <laughs> so Michael, if you were, um, if you were starting all over today, yeah. knowing everything that you know now, yeah. And I talked about this briefly before we, we started our interview. The difference between knowledge and wisdom. Yeah. I've always defined that is that wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Mm -hmm. You've had a career's worth of applying knowledge. Yeah. <clears throat> now you have wisdom and you've probably forgotten a lot of the knowledge because you've applied it. And, but if you, if you were going to go back knowing what you know now, and you were going to talk to Michael Sonic in that mall, practicing mall dentistry, <clears throat> what would you tell him that would have gotten him even further faster? I mean, you've, you've done amazing work, but what would you tell that mall dentist? Yeah, I would say, and this is the hard part. 
because early on in your career, you don't know who to go to for advice. Yeah. So I've had many lawyers and accountants and business people I've worked with that are no longer there. I always say, if you look at your wedding, you know, 30 years ago, would you invite the same people? So my business relationship, I would find the best people possible and partner with them and create, create, create an approach. And I've tried to do that. You know, I was a little too independent because that's my personality. I want to do everything by myself. I don't want to be anybody's person myself, but I still, I did a lot of mentoring from afar. I, I, I'm pretty happy with my career, you know? It's I just because I think I made a commitment early on to really do the right thing. I have a story in my book. It's called the Hans Sin story. He's a patient who passed away. I don't know if you remember it, but Han, it was my first year in practice. And I was, you know, four hundred thousand dollars in debt, which was a lot in 1985. And uh, Hans came in and I did some scaling and he needed some surgery. I said, you need surgery because, well, my insurance doesn't kick in for six months. He goes, but I'll do it now if, if I have to. And at that moment, I knew that I was being tested. I almost felt it was a spiritual moment, like God was up there looking down on me or what somehow your power. And uh, he, I mean, his teeth weren't going to fall out in six months. So I said, um, um, you can wait till next year. It's not a problem. And let, you, let your insurance kick in. And that was one of those uh, ethical dilemmas, you know, it was when like, do you do what's good for you or for other people? And I think that's, that was my philosophy to do what's right for Hans. And I needed the money. And um, Hans was 42. Uh, he died of a massive heart attack two months later. Oh. And I, you know, he could have died in my chair or I could have done a surgery. He could have died. I would have felt like really creepy about that. And then his wife came in as a new patient a few months later. And I was able to fit, sit there and talk with her, human to human. Like, I didn't talk to her about that decision. I never talked to her about that. I was thinking about doing surgery on your husband. But, you know, yeah. I just said, well, you know, I felt I, I feel I could hold my head hot. Last night, I found out that one of my patients of 35 years had passed away. He was 80 years old. He had had cancer. He was one of three patients that never missed a recall in 30 years. His name is Russell Kroll. He's on my website. He's done a video for me. I didn't know he died. And so I called his wife last night. It's been six months. And we had a long talk about Russell and how much I respected him. And be able to be there for him. I, I treated him in 1986 until last year. And to be able to feel good about the treatment I've done, and I was there, he was told he was going to lose all his teeth in 1986. In 30 years, he lost one tooth. He has one implant. Kept all his teeth because he came in every three months. I just felt good about that. So I don't know I'd give myself any different advice. I would just try to find the right people, but I didn't know who the right people were. Yeah. So when you're 30 years old, how do you know who the greats are who are 30-year-olds? You know, Because a lot of dentists I've worked with, I've worked with hundreds of dentists. A lot of them want nothing to do with me because my philosophy is different. They want me to do the procedure and get them back. Some of them say, hey, you know, I send them just for that. And, and the thing is, I think whether you're a specialist or not, and you said, you know, I have to, I work with other dentists. I don't compromise. I don't compromise the integrity of who I am with the patients in my practice to get increased business. So um, I, and I'll only refer to somebody who I have tremendous respect for who I would let treat me. And so that's the advice I'd give younger, younger people. I was pretty clear on that early, for whatever reason. I made plenty of mistakes in other areas of my life. Financial mistakes. I've been bankrupt. You know, I was a land developer. I've made so many, you know, uh, I got divorced 30 years ago. You know, it was like, you know, I, didn't, I don't know. I'm happily married now. But how do you know? You know, it's a lot of these things you have to sort of figure out. I think the important thing is just to pay attention. I try to pay attention. And if, I'm, if it's not working, change course. You know, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Don't be afraid to experiment. All the great companies do it. 
You know, that's the only way we're going to get forward. A lot of people are a little too conservative. And I think a lot of us are afraid, you know, let's just stay right, right where we are. Um, and I think it's possible for anybody. You know, I don't think I'm particularly talented. I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm good at reading people, but I don't think I'm a particularly talented dentist. I think I work really hard and I got it. You know, so I was average in dental school. And so all my friends from dental school can't believe that I'm out there doing this now. They go, you're the last person I expect, especially, you know, at 70 years old and still passionate about it. I have one friend from dental school, brilliant guy, Dave Rosiania. He's still out there doing it too. The two of us are, we, we have a reunion every year on Block Island and he and I uh, are the only ones that really want to continue to do this. Other people, everybody else is on, on retirement mode, but as Dan Sullivan says, why retire for something that you love? You know, I love uh, Michael. I love your passion and just not only for doing the work, but for sharing how you do it with other people. And, uh, you know, you talk about find the best people. And one of the best ways to find the best people is some of the best people write the best books. Thank you. And, um, and you've done an amazing job. I know from personal experience how hard it is to write a good, coherent book with a solid message. And you've done an awesome job with this that just shares some of your, your whole life's experience and your philosophy. So again, the, the book is entitled Treating People, Not Patients. And uh, the subtitle, Transformational Insights on Hospitality and Human Connection, to provide high quality care experiences for people and practitioners. Um, it's everywhere. Do you have a preferred place where people buy it? Amazon's fine. Amazon's yeah. good. Yeah, I don't sell it. It's on Amazon. You can go to my website, which is my last name, michaelsonic.com. And there you can see all the courses I give, both on hospitality and uh, you know surgical technique. I also have an online series of um, videos that are designed to bring into your practices there are 10, 15 minute segments to teach the, the team, you know, various aspects of, of hospitality. So it's a good start. What a workbook. And, uh, I, I do know, cause I saw this on your email. One of my, one of my mentors, Dr. John Coyce, big fan of yours, yeah. uh, must read at uh, the Coyce center as well. So thank you. Uh, great, great wisdom. And thank you for sharing your experience and your wisdom with us today, we could do five hours of this. Yeah. <laughs> and there's hours and hours uh, in the book. So thanks for getting this kicked off on that. And thanks for your great example and keep doing what you're doing uh, because you're doing not only a lot of good for patients, but a lot of, of good for dentistry too. So thank you for, for sharing and being our mentor. Thank you very much. I appreciate being on the show. Thanks for joining us for this Mentor of the Month podcast sponsored by Crown Council. This is just one tool available to the Crown Council membership that helps dental teams build a culture of success. That's our mission and purpose is to provide a place for dental teams to come together and learn the skills needed to develop your most valuable asset, the people, those people who work in your practice. As always, if you're interested in being part of this group or want more information about the tools available to the membership, go to www.crowncouncil.com or call us 1-800-276-9658. Thanks.